Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Alpine. My name is John Bellis, if we've never met. I'm the lead pastor up at the Alpine Logan campus. I also have the opportunity to serve on the executive team at Alpine, and it's a blessing to be worshiping with you guys this morning. I haven't got to teach in Brigham since you've been in this building. I taught at the other Brigham campus a couple times, and hopefully this is a more regular thing. I hope I get a chance to come down here and be with you guys a little more often. Uh, I want to say again, if it's your first time here, we're excited that you're with us. We hope that you feel very welcome today. I hope you feel right at home. Uh, today we're in our second week of this sermon series called Resilient. And in this series, we're looking at emotions that tend to push us away from God, that tend to lead into sin. And we want to learn to harness those emotions. We know that if we can harness these emotions, they actually can lead us to God. They can actually strengthen our faith. Now, this isn't going to be some self-help, power of positive thinking series that you can listen to on Audible or go to the bookstore and get. We're going right to God's Word for this. After all, God created us. God created our emotions. So what better source of wisdom to know how to manage those emotions than His Word? Now, the reason I think resiliency is so important is because we live in a broken and fallen world. Like, we're going to be dealing with these emotions that we're covering in this series over and over again. Just this last week in my own life, I've had to harness anger. I've had to harness grief, shame, fear. Those are the emotions that we're going to talk about. So how do we do that in a way that draws us closer to God? Our central verse for this series is Proverbs 4.3, which says, Guard your heart above all else for it determines the course of your life. It's a pretty powerful statement, isn't it? If you're thinking about that, that my heart determines the course of my life. And when the Bible talks about heart, it's not just this organ in our chest that pumps blood through our body. It's the very central part of us, kind of our core. It's our feelings, our will, our emotions. That's what the Bible is talking about when it says our heart. So my ability to guard my heart, my ability to harness my emotions is going to direct the course of my life. The emotion we're going to focus on today is anger. And when we hear the word anger, I think most of us would probably describe that as a negative emotion. It's something that typically leads us away from God. It's something that can often be sinful. But anger in and of itself is not sinful. We know that's true because we know Jesus experienced anger and Jesus never sinned. He was perfect. So how can we harness that anger? See, it's not anger in and of itself that's sinful. It's what we do with it. It's whether we control it or it controls us. It's the object of our anger. Those are what determines whether or not that anger is sinful And the deceptive thing about anger is anger is a masking emotion. And what I mean by that is usually when we're angry, there's some deeper issue, there's some deeper emotion going on beneath the surface. But it's just easier to express anger than it is to take the time to really figure out what's going on underneath. I don't know about you guys, but that happens to me all the time. I'm getting a little better as I get older at when I'm angry, kind of stopping and, and asking myself, John, like, what are you? What are you really mad at? What's really going on? And for me, at least, what usually is happening is I either feel frustrated that I'm not in control or I feel inadequate. 
I feel like I'm not good enough at something, and that manifests itself in anger. And you can probably relate. Anybody else here feel like Jekyll and Hyde when you get behind the wheel of your vehicle? Right? You leave the house, and you're not angry. It's a good day. The birds are singing. You know, you're ready to go. And then two miles from home, you've already had two people cut you off. The guy behind you is riding your bumper so close, he can tell you what cologne you're wearing that day, and your head's about to explode, right? You've had enough. Kind of that Jekyll and Hyde. And we justify it. We're like, yeah, but John, they're, they're not safe. So that's why I'm so angry. And maybe that's true. Maybe they're not being safe. But I think the real reason is it's a stark reminder we're not in control. I can't control if I hit the red lights or if they're green, right? I can't control how other people drive around me. I'm just simply not in control, and that's frustrating. For me, it's even worse when I feel inadequate or I feel like I'm not good enough at something. That's almost always when I have outbursts of anger. One of the things that sets me off more than anything else is if I have car trouble. I'm just not really a car guy. I'm not great at doing my own repairs. And my father-in-law, before he passed away, he could fix anything with an engine. So that's what my wife was used to growing up. If something broke, he just fixed it. And so when I can't do that, I feel like I'm not good enough for her. I feel like I'm inadequate. And that often will result in an anger outburst. Now, maybe for you, it's not working on cars. Maybe for you, it's technology. Maybe for you, it's articulating how you feel. Maybe it's trying to get your point across to someone who's on the other side of the political aisle than you. But whatever it is, the next time you notice anger, ask yourself, what's really going on? Is that really the issue? Is there something deeper that I'm struggling with? Now, we're going to look at three different examples of how individuals dealt with anger in the Bible, two that were sinful and one that was not. So let's go ahead and jump in and see what kind of wisdom we can draw from this as we go through. I think I went too far. The first one we look at is Cain's anger. So we're in Genesis chapter 4. If you want to follow along in your Bible, we're going to be beginning in verse 3. It says, When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us for sure why God accepted Abel's gift, but not Cain's. It could be because Abel brought the best portions of his firstborn lambs. It doesn't say that about Cain. It doesn't say that Cain brought the best of his crops. It just says he brought some. Or it could be, some scholars say, that it's because what Cain brought to the table was the work of his own hands. And that we can never please God by trying to bring an offering of the work of our own hands. That's what some people believe. Maybe it had to do with his attitude. Maybe it wasn't so much about what Cain brought as an offering, but maybe it was his heart condition. Maybe it was how he brought it. Maybe he was stingy and he didn't really want to bring this offering to the Lord, but he did it under compulsion. What we do know for sure is God was just. So whatever reason God had for not accepting Cain's offer, it was a just reason because that's God's character. And you can see here in the story, there's way more going on than just anger. Cain's not just angry, he's dejected. He doesn't feel like he was good enough. 
There's also feelings of jealousy, right? He's jealous that his brother's sacrifice was accepted, but his offering was not. So we continue on in the story in verses 6 and 7. This is God talking. He says, why are you so angry? The Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. So God asked Cain, Cain, why are you angry? And it's not like God didn't know the answer. God's not asking Cain because he's ignorant of the reason. God is omniscient. God knows why he's angry. God is trying to get Cain to slow down and really think about why he's angry. What's the rub, Cain? And in his mercy, God gives Cain this warning. God says, hey, if you do what is right, you'll be accepted, but watch out because sin is crouching at your door. See, up to this point, sin wasn't controlling Cain yet. Anger wasn't controlling Cain yet. And God gave him this warning. He could still harness his anger He could still use it for something productive. He could still use it to draw closer to God. But if you know the story, you know that's not what happened, right? We know what ended up happening. Cain allowed his anger to control him, and we read about it in verse 8. It says, one day Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the fields. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. So Cain, controlled by jealousy and anger, killed his brother. Does anybody else see the disconnect here? His beef wasn't with Abel. Cain was angry at God. God's the one who didn't accept his sacrifice. God's the one who said, your offering isn't pleasing to me, and yet he took it out on Abel. So his anger wasn't only sinful, it was misguided. The individual that he had the beef with, in this case, God Almighty, isn't who he poured it out on. He poured it out on his brother. And I bet if we asked our spouses and our kids, they would probably say they've experienced the same thing. Right? We've had a hard day at work, a long day at work, but we've we've kept it bottled in. We've we've managed it, but then we get home and something insignificant happens and we lose it. And we lose it on our family. We lose it on the ones that love us the most. So my question is, what has anger killed off in your life? Now, we probably haven't murdered our sibling, hopefully. Nobody's done that in here. But has it killed a relationship? Has it killed an opportunity for a promotion at work? Have you lost joy in life because you've let that anger take root and it's turned to bitterness it's turned into cynicism. I've experienced that. My, my wife and I, when our kids were young and before we had kids, used to play in a lot of co-ed doubles volleyball tournaments all around the state of Utah. And we were decent. In fact, my athletic claim to fame is that she and I beat Jake Gibb and his wife in a tournament down in Salt Lake City. If you don't know who Jake Gibb is, he's represented the United States in three different Olympics in beach volleyball. So he's pretty good. One spring before the season started, my wife said, I don't want to play with you this year. Like, if you're going to keep being this angry when we play, I'm out. 
Now, she was still committed to our marriage. She wasn't out of our marriage, but she didn't want to be my partner on the court anymore. And man, it, that broke me. That I had allowed my anger, my poutiness, my whininess at times on the volleyball court to threaten to take away something that I love doing, to take away the opportunity to spend so much time with her. Our anger has consequences. We have to harness that before it kills things in our life. Let's take a look at our second example. We're going to talk about Moses. And we're going to look at Numbers 20, verses 1 and 2 to start, if you have that there. In the first month of the year, the whole community of Israel arrived in the wilderness of Zin and camped at Kadesh. While they were there, Miriam died and was buried. And there was no water for the people to drink in that place, so they rebelled against Moses and Aaron. Now, this is what I would call the straw that broke the camel's back anger. Have you ever experienced that where things just keep piling up and piling up and you're, you're kind of managing it, you're kind of harnessing it, and then something insignificant trips it off? So let's set some context to what's going on here in the story of Moses. This is after the nation of Israel had been to the border of the promised land the first time. And they sent the 12 spies in to spy out the promised land, if you know the story. Ten of the 12 spies come back and say, that land devours the people who try to live there. And it's filled with giants, and if we go in, man, they're going to crush us. And only two of the 12 spies, Joshua and Caleb, said, no, the land flows with milk and honey, just like God said it does. And God will deliver them into our hands. We can take this place. But the Israelites listened to the majority, and so they didn't go in. They disobeyed God, so they get sent out into the wilderness to wander for 40 years. It's their fault they're in the area with no water. It's their fault they're in the wilderness, and yet they come whining and complaining to Moses that there's no water. So the Israelites come out and complain, why did you make us leave Egypt, they say. Like, why did you bring us out to the desert to die? Again, it's their fault. It's like when you're kids, you tell them, right, don't eat that bowl full of candy, your stomach's going to hurt. <laughs> and they do it anyway, and then they come whining to you, my stomach hurts, and you're like, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> you made the decision. So Moses and Aaron go before the Lord, and here's what the Lord instructs them. He says, you and Aaron must take the staff and assemble the entire community. As the people watch, speak to the rock over there, and it will pour out its water. You will provide enough water from the rock to satisfy the whole community and their livestock. So pay attention to the instructions. The instructions were to do what? Speak to the rock. Okay? Here's what happened. Verses 10 and 11 says, Then he and Aaron summoned the people to come together at the rock. Listen, you rebels, he shouted. Must we bring you water from this rock? And then Moses raised his hand and struck the rock twice with his staff, and water gushed out. So the entire community and their livestock drank their fill. Now this is the second time God has used Moses to bring water out of a rock. And the first time, he did instruct Moses to strike the rock. But this time, he was only supposed to speak to it. But Moses, I think, has had it up to here. <laughs> I think he has had enough. Years and years of the grumbling and complaining. The fact that he's in the wilderness right now, he's in the desert when he should be hanging out in the promised land. He just lost his sister. 
His sister just passed away. And I think it all comes to a head. And we see it. Moses shouts at the people. He calls them rebels. Listen, you rebels. Must we bring water out of this rock? And instead of speaking to the rock, he strikes it. And I don't know this for a fact. This is just speculation, and we need to be careful when we speculate about God's Word. But I don't think it was a love tap. (laughs) I think he let it all out. I think he hit that rock about as hard as he could. Now, here's what's interesting to me. In his mercy, even though Moses was disobedient, even though the Israelites were disobedient, God still provided the water. God still met their needs. And he wasn't a stingy God. He didn't just give them barely enough water. It says they drank their fill. Our God is so merciful. He's so generous to us, even in our disobedience. Maybe some of you can empathize with Moses. Have you ever had that experience where you've just had it up to here and finally something insignificant has set you off and you strike the rock? Maybe in our case, you've put a hand through a wall. Anybody else in here ever have to do the drywall patch of shame because you didn't harness your anger? My youngest daughter, Hannah, when she was born, we learned in the delivery room that she had Down syndrome. We didn't know ahead of time. It was kind of a shock to us. Now, that didn't really get me angry. I won't go into all the details, but God had been actually preparing my heart for that for months. Uh, It it was a really neat experience, the peace I had in that. So I, I wasn't angry when that happened. But about five minutes after that, the doctor said, we think she has some, some fluid and some stuff on her lungs. We're worried about infection, so off to the NICU they took her. And she's hooked up with all the monitors and the IVs in her forehead because her little veins couldn't take them and all this stuff. At the time, I was self-employed. I had a very high deductible health savings account. So in addition to the physical pain and the anxiety of that, I knew it was a minimum of 15 grand out of pocket when she went into the NICU. But I was still doing Okay really wasn't that angry. I knew God had it. I knew I could trust him. The day we leave the hospital, my wife starts getting heart palpitations. She has to wear a monitor when we go home, and now I'm feeling it. I'm scared I'm going to lose the love of my life. And I can feel the anger starting to fester a little bit, wondering why God's allowing all this to happen at once. Angry at myself for decisions I had made that, you know, put us in the financial situation we were in at that time. But we're still doing okay. We get home. A week after we get home, the ceiling in my front room just inside the front door falls in because of a water leak in the roof that we didn't know we had. So now I'm dealing with my new child with Downs, my wife on a heart monitor, the insurance adjuster, the cleanup, all of that. And I'm pretty angry. But I'm still holding it in. I'm still harnessing it. A week after that, we have a big windstorm, and I don't know if you guys have this, but we have a little trap door that gets us into our attic in the hallway. That gets blown out. And so I go to set it back up in there, and it's one of those that you kind of have to put it in at an angle, and then once you get it up, you set it back down, and it rests in place. Well, the issue is when it fell, a little corner chipped. So two or three times I try to set it in, it falls down, set it in, it falls down. Finally, I get it to stick I step down off the chair, I turn about two steps away, and it falls again, and I lost it. I put two holes in the wall in our hallway. I unhurled a string of four-letter words that I'm ashamed my kids heard me say. And over what? Over nothing. It was the most insignificant thing that had happened in the last month of my life, but I didn't harness it. 
And it had consequences just like it had consequences for Moses. Moses had consequences. Chapter 20, verse 12, it says, But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust me enough to demonstrate my holiness to the people of Israel, you will not lead them into the land I am giving them. That's heartbreaking. And Moses was faithful for all these years. He listened to all the grumbling and complaining. He led the people well. But this one moment of unharnessed anger kept him from going to the promised land. You know, earlier in the book of Numbers, in Numbers chapter 12, if you're reading it in ESV or the King James Version, Moses is described as the most meek man to ever be on the face of the earth at that time. Now, we don't use the word meek very often today, and when we do use it, we usually use it incorrectly. It doesn't mean what we think it means. Like when you hear meek, you probably think timid or maybe shy. That's not meek. The word picture in the Bible for the word meek is a bridled war horse. It's not weak. It's not timid. It's powerful. It's strong, but it's under control. It's harnessed. That's how we should be with our anger. See, up until that point, Moses had harnessed his anger. He'd harnessed his power, but in that moment of weakness, it was uncontrolled. Now, it's important to note, this didn't break Moses' relationship with God. Moses still had a relationship with God, but it did cost him from spending his last years in the promised land. If you're a follower of Christ, when you let your anger control you, you don't lose your relationship with God but there are consequences. There are things you're missing out on. So which promised land are you missing out on because of your anger? Like what has uncontrolled anger cost you to miss out on? James 1.20 says that human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Sorry, guys, I went, I went too apart. Uh, human anger is usually tainted by sin. It doesn't always have to be, but usually our human anger is tainted by sin. We're more often angry over injustices that we think happen to us than we are over injustices that happen to others. Human anger is usually a selfish anger. One of the ways you can kind of tell if your anger is righteous or not, if it's a selfish anger, it's probably not a righteous anger. Now, we know that anger can be righteous, though, because, again, Jesus exhibited anger and Jesus never sinned. So we're going to wrap up by looking at Jesus' anger we find this in Matthew 21, verses 12 and 13. It says, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, the scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. Now, it wasn't just the presence of the animal sellers and the money changers that caused Jesus to be angry. They served a purpose. The pilgrims coming into Jerusalem from other areas did need to have animals for sacrifice. But commercialism had gotten out of hand. Instead of this reverent place of worship, you'd hear the bleeding of animals. You'd hear men haggling over prices. You'd hear the clanging of the money, trading hands. In addition to that, people were being ripped off. People were being charged exorbitant prices because they had nowhere else to go to get these animals. It's like 
concessions at the movie theater or the ball game, right? They've already got you. They know you're going to pay the $7 for the large drink. Kind of the same thing was happening here. And then above and beyond that, the Gentiles who could only go into the court of Gentiles, that's as close as they could go to worship God, they're being pushed out by all the commerce that's taking place. So in His righteous anger, Jesus cleanses the temple. This wasn't a knee-jerk reaction. It wasn't an uncontrolled outburst. This was planned. This was harnessed. This was thought out. In fact, this is actually the second time Jesus cleansed the temple. If you're reading John's gospel, we know that much earlier in his ministry, Jesus cleansed the temple. And when he did it, it's interesting, it says that he stopped and he prepared a whip made of rope before he cleansed cleansed the temple. So it was premeditated. Again, it was thought out. It wasn't something he did spontaneously because he was out of control. He harnessed that anger. But then look at the very next verses after Jesus does this. It says, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. So Jesus wasn't stomping around, fuming after he had cleansed the temple. Again, he noticed the need around him. He had compassion on those people. How often do you and I exhibit compassion at the same time we're angry? Hopefully you're better than me, but for me, I, not very often, which tells me my anger is usually not a righteous anger. My anger is a selfish anger. How did the leading priests and the religious leaders respond? This is what we read in verse 15. It says, the leading priests and the teachers of religious law saw these wonderful miracles and heard even the children in the temple shouting, praise God for the son of David. But the leaders were indignant. The religious leaders, they saw the miracles. There's no indication in the text that they didn't believe in the miracles. Right? There were times in Jesus' ministry where they thought maybe he was just pulling the wool over people's eyes. But no, they see the miracles. They accept them as miracles. And they're still indignant. And they're not only angry because of what Jesus is doing, they're angry because Jesus is receiving praise. These kids are singing, praise God for the son of David, and Jesus receives that. He doesn't rebuke him, or rebuke them, excuse me. So Jesus is showing that there is messianic significance to what he's doing and to what they're saying. And when the religious leaders push back on that, if you keep reading in this chapter, Jesus refers back to Psalm 8. And he says, haven't you read the scriptures? For they say, you have taught children and infants to give you praise. So Jesus is making the rightful claim that not only is he the Messiah, Jesus is making the rightful claim that he is God. and That as such, he can receive worship. He can receive praise. Well, when he does that, it lights them up, man. Do you think they were mad before? <laughs> now the religious leaders are boiling over. Their anger goes unharnessed, and it'd be only days later that they would have Jesus arrested. They'd have a sham of a trial. They would release a convicted killer in Barabbas, and they would send Jesus to the cross. So I want to wrap up by asking, how can we harness our anger for good? So I want to end with some very practical steps on how we can harness our anger for righteousness. First, when you feel anger rising up, be slow to speak. That's, that's what it says in James, be slow to speak and slow to anger. Now, I'm not saying just stuff it under the rug and never talk about it. No, that's not healthy either. 
But in the heat of the moment, when you know you're about to lose control, bite your tongue. You can't ever take those words back. You can ask for forgiveness, but you can't pull them back, right? Just bite your tongue. Give yourself some time to process what's really going on. Second, remind yourself that God is in control. That the things that catch you off guard, the things that you don't think are fair, God is sovereign over all of that. And go to Him in prayer. God, remind me that you're in control. God, thank you that you're in control. And then lastly, if God is calling you to act, act. Now, the way you're supposed to act may be to just pray for the person or the situation that's causing the anger, but it may be more than that. Maybe God's calling you to act with your money. Maybe he's saying, hey, quit supporting these companies that are doing this stuff, this trash that makes you angry. Quit giving them your money. Maybe he's saying to do something with your vote and the way that you vote for our leaders. Maybe he's saying you need to have an honest conversation with someone, a gentle one. Certainly be gentle, be respectful, but maybe you have to go up and have a a hard conversation about truth. And we talked at the beginning of the sermon about how our heart determines the course of our actions, but here's the truth. We need a new heart. So we, we can talk all day long about trying harder and practical steps, but until God gives you a new heart, you won't win this victory. So the reality is we all have a sin problem. Our hearts are hard. (laughs) We need a new, soft, responsive heart. And thankfully, God sent His Son, Jesus, who lived the perfect life that we couldn't live, and He went to the cross. And on the cross, He paid the debt that we should have paid. You know, I said earlier that at the time Moses lived, the Bible calls him the most meek man on the face of the earth. The most meek man who ever lived was Jesus Christ. You talk about bridled power. This is Almighty God humbling himself in human form. The whole time they were mocking him, the whole time they were spitting on him, the whole time they were beating him, when they jammed a crown of thorns in his forehead, and even as he hung on the cross, he could have ended it at any second. He could have called down legions of angels to deliver him. He could have just killed all of his enemies with a word, but he took it. He took it for you, And he took it for me. He harnessed it. But then three days later, he unleashed that power and he rose from the grave. And because of that, if we put our faith in him, he will give us a new tender heart. So if you have questions about that, if you want to talk about that, I know Pastor Michael would love to talk to you. I'll be around after the service. We'd love to have that conversation. For those of us who have already done that, my prayer for you and my prayer for me is this week we'll harness our anger And we'll use it to draw us closer to God and build His kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you loved us enough that you sent Jesus. And Jesus, we are so grateful that you are meek. That in some times that were so difficult, we'll never even fully understand you harnessed your anger against sin that you allowed evil men to beat and torture and crucify you to redeem us. And we are so grateful. We are so thankful. So Jesus, please help us to be honest. Just help us to be honest about our anger this week. Help us not to fool ourselves into saying it's righteous anger when it's not. Now again, there, 
There is such a thing as righteous anger. And I pray, God, that when we experience that, that we would act as you want us to act. But when that anger is selfish, when that anger is sinful, God, we ask that you would give us the power through your spirit to control it, to harness it, and that you would use it to allow us to grow in our faith. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.